If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. I'm Mike. I'm Mark. And we're from SDX. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. And it's time to get lost and rewound. Happy October. Thank you for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn this afternoon. My name is Alon Danziger, and I am the host and producer for Lost and Rewound, the weekly dig into your audio archives from the yesteryears, not the yestermonth or the yesterweek or yesterday, yesteryears. And on this installment, I am joined once again by Rachel Teichman. We have some truly wonderful sounds of the past for you, the listener, to enjoy, courtesy of some very special guests. There is so much show, so let's get started, shall we, on this week's journey. If you happen to have been living in New York for a while, I know I have, but not nearly as long as I would think, there's a good chance you've seen these guys play all over this stinking town. From Arlene's Grocery, Joe's Pub, Mercury Lounge, and CBGB's, just to name a handful of the greats, both past and present. Well, this past spring, under the group name EstX, Mark and Mike Rinzel together recorded a new album in response to the COVID crisis. It's called Strange Times, and you could hear it in its entirety on Apple Music, Spotify, or Bandcamp. Today, we're going to talk about that project and a whole lot more from the distant past. Welcome to Lost and Rewound, the brothers, Rinzel. All right. Glad to be here. Great to be here. You guys have been mainstays in the New York City area for a while now, but you're originally from Washington, D.C. Yeah, Washington, D.C. suburbs. One of the things we're going to be talking about, EstX, is actually short for Establishment X, and that was a group that you guys were in when you were 14, or, sorry, I don't know the age difference, you guys were both in, like, you know, your early teen puberty years. (laughs) I was 11 and Mike was 15. You were both playing music from such a young age, and you're still playing music now, and it's just, that's fascinating. Your parents, were they musicians as well? No. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Our dad is an applied mathematician and he worked at the National Institutes of Health. They were music lovers. So we grew up with a lot of music in the house. I mean, big record collection. My dad was like a bit of a gearhead. We had the hi-fi system and all that stuff, big record collection. So music was definitely on a lot. But uh, Mm -hmm. no, my dad is learning piano now in his 70s. But it was really kind of something that I would say we were sort of first generation kind of took it seriously. It's not, there's not really a whole lot of history of it in our family. We were really suburban kids that kind of had to find and create this thing in the basement. You know, that's very much what Establishment X was. We were kind of having a tough year as a family and we just had each other really in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of it was kind of music instead of angry and antisocial sounding. You know, now I understand it because I'm also a working psychotherapist. We were sort of sublimating a lot of rage and despair and all that sort of angst and stuff into these songs that we were making. Being 15 and 11, the age differential at that point in time was much greater. And I had had a lot more exposure to like underground DC punk when I got to high school. And high school for me 
uh, there was a lot of interest in like Minor Threat and, um, you know, Ides of March and, and all of those bands that were popular in DC hardcore. And so I wasn't authentically really trained in it or played it, but I was very into the attitude of it. You were involved all the same. Yeah, I was involved and, and uh, I had a lot of mixtapes that friends would give me. I never actually went and bought any records because I didn't really have any money to buy you know, these crazy little Discord records that came out, but definitely got mixtapes and didn't even know the names of the bands on them, but I like the sound. And um, th this idea of do-it-yourself back in 1985 really appealed to me. You know, Mark was taking piano and he was also a performer from like the time he was came out of the womb, like literally. Mark was the performer. I was more of the gadget, let me produce this thing those rules sort of like held up over, over the years even. So we recorded this stuff and we didn't even have like a four track recording studio or anything like that. We just had two tape decks that were component tape decks. One of them had a line in and a microphone in and I figured out how I could bounce tracks back and forth so that I could record Mark and I playing and then take that track, bounce it again and add something on top of it live and then add something on top of that. So. Some of the tracks on the original Establishment X recordings are like Mark and me playing live and then me dubbing a bunch of guitars on it. You're teeing it up so nicely that I think we just have to go right into one of the first tracks. The song um, Homework, <laughs> something that Rachel probably knows a little about. I know more than a little about homework. <laughs> it's my whole life. Oh, yeah. And sometimes you don't want to do it, do you? Some of the time. I mean, Mark, you're a psychotherapist, right? <laughs> well, right. So Mike and I would have these little interstitials with each other. I don't know if you, you sent those to Mike. I didn't. Those are still staying in the vaults until those are still staying. <laughs> so we would have these little sketches between the like in between. What? Yeah. How dare you was, not share those? Ah, it was, okay. It was very like Frank Zappa. Like they would have, have these. Uh, Hector and Eugene would be arguing. Like, and like one, what was the thing? I think that what led before this was like, what is the answer to the math problem? Not getting it right. Oh my God, there's uh, so much in there. <laughs> some of this like hilarious stuff. So I think musically was, uh, that was just the sketch and I had just learned how to do chord inversions. You know, how to do one, four, five without like shifting. And I had, we had a little Casio. We had, I think one or two, I think just one microphone, right? One little cheap microphone that was like right in front of me. So I'm singing into it by the Casio speaker and then Mike's PTS drum set. And the other side of the room so it's incredible it was, like, it was like motown one mic catches the whole thing might have had two mics going into a splitter but yeah it, it was very low tech it was yeah super, yeah maybe you mark, had an overhead yeah, yeah for this know. song i think mark probably wrote the chords and the melody and lyrics and i just played drums and then i laid guitar on top of it yeah the guitar was a toy guitar that i stuck the microphone inside the guitar no yeah. And it distorted it like a distorted guitar. And you would use it as a bass. And then you had a real electric guitar too. And I bought one. Yeah. I bought yeah. an electric guitar from a classmate and he sold it to me on the train tracks. He met me at the train <laughs> that tracks. Is so, <laughs> that train that is so, that is DIY in a nutshell. We <laughs> did a barter system. I gave him my best baseball cards and he traded me on the train tracks. A great, great guitar that I had for years. Totally. It was totally like that. I think he even like made the guitar, like sanded <laughs> it down. It was like, 
what? It was awesome. It was like, this is, if you want purest, do it yourself. This is it. some intrinsic talent going on there because just i don't know there there was something to it secondly i vibe i get it that's i mean you guys were onto something y'all had some angst because yeah yeah, like i got kids to raise i don't want to spend 20 years wasting my time that's me right now i get it Good. I thought, I'm glad you could. I mean, I, I think it was like a universal thought from the world. I'm a 10 or 11 year old that projected out to everyone. It's like a universal feeling. What I, year was this? 86. 85. 80, 80, 
It might have been 86. I think it was okay. the winter between 85, 86. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it was fifth grade for me. Yeah. It was sophomore year for me. What was going on that was so tumultuous in your personal lives? Well, um, my mom had had a stillbirth over the oh. summer. We were dealing with a death in the nuclear family. And school teachers were not like they are now back then. So I had this really kind of punitive, unforgiving teacher. So I was having a lot of behavior problems all year. I think if I had not had this to do, thank God I did. I mean, it was like just this kind of, it was like one of these things where Mike and I kind of created a family within the family, starting with this. There's actually a record which we cannot find. It's a full double album. (laughs) That Mark and I recorded the summer before this project as a different band called the M&Ms. And the name of that <laughs> record was Grandma Fell Down the Stairs. Falls yeah. Down the Stairs. It was present tense. It was, yeah, right. <laughs> and it was, and it was, <laughs> gotta be very careful about the but, text. <laughs> we, wrote, we wrote a song in that called Father's Day, which I can okay. still recite. You know how you, when you talk into a fan, it makes a robotic sound? Sure. Yeah. So both of us would get right next to the fan and we recorded this song, Father's Day, Day. the day, day to celebrate, celebrate your, your father. father. <laughs> <laughs> Everything your father does is celebrated. We actually revealed it to him in a car ride on Father's Day. And I don't mm. think he was very pleased about it. Our dad's a good guy, but you know, he was very driven by his work. We were just finding other ways to plug ourselves into projects. I think the idea of establishing X and starting a band and branding it was something I was already obsessed with. And it was something that like, I I just studied album covers and the way bands like put together their identities and like what Mark and I could be. And I don't know where the name Establishment X came from, honestly. It feels like a very DC underground band yeah. name. So, like, I don't know. Like, you, Wait, you well, had your finger on the pulse of something. Yeah. Which was funny because later, when I was old enough to, like, go see Fugazi and stuff like that, I kind of thought it was uh, boring and juvenile. I, I just kind of was sort of over it at that point. I was kind of listening to Indigo Girls, whatever. I was on to a different <laughs> Amazing. thing. Amazing. You know, I, I was just, I was like a theater kid and full on into Jane's Addiction. And I never was into Smiths or any of that sort of stuff. What Mike was talking about, I had no talents in that area as far as like design or stuff like that. He's right. I just wanted to kind of be up on stage and make noise and be looked at. It brings up a lot listening to it because I haven't heard that one in a while. Like the yeah. other, I wanted to address the fact that our face is listening to that. This one thing mm-hmm. that I gotta say, the, the the you know doing a Zoom recording session, mm-hmm. it's just watching everybody's faces during listening, and yours easily I was captivated by because you were putting your face in your hands, just like what is happening right now. <laughs> With, yeah, map it, map it out for us. Like what was going through your head listening to something that is so far removed from you well, now? Be- because it's not, it still sounds extremely familiar to me. I mean, some of it's kind of embarrassing, but I don't remember being that kind of free since then. I was impressed that like, there was actually like an A part and a B part. Although you can hear me scream at you in the middle of go, sing, Mark. Sing. <laughs> I, I didn't catch that. I couldn't catch that either, yeah. but I'm glad you did. In you were shaking your head. Verse, I'm like, yeah. okay, Mark, sing. Yeah. No, I mean, it, 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 
it's quite a document. And it's not the kind of document that kids are going to make now because everything's so perfect. Like parts of it are like, yeah, it's like really locked in. And then there's other parts of it that are just a total mess. It was as analog as could be, you know, that you can't go and pitch correct anything or that's take right. anything out. It was just like, it was two performances and that's the print. Mike, why don't you set up the second track when we'll go uh, talking about playground problems. Did you uh, have playground problems? Yeah, I probably did. I was a smaller kid and I was real pretty, you know, so like I definitely got like <laughs> picked up. <laughs> In a deliverance sort of way. Uh, no, Boy. no, not that way. I mean, <laughs> like the girls liked me, but I was small. So it was also like a target of jealousy and a target of intimidation. So the other problem I had was that I had a big fat mouth. So I was a little guy with a big mouth. So I got into some scrapes, but generally, uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't say I was like too scarred by it. Mark was singing about something that uh, probably happened to him earlier. It's not something I'm particularly proud of, but it was specifically about this one kid named Matt Ashione, who nowadays would have probably been in a program for kids that are on the spectrum. Like they had just sort of dropped, moved, the family had moved and just like plopped him in our school. And he like kind of was attached to me. And of course it was a year that I was kind of just sort of angry and not really open to that. Fifth grade, you're kind of, I think, I, rem I remember being kind of conscious of like, I don't want to be hanging out with the wrong people. It was about like wanting to shake this kid. But it morphed and expressed itself as an antisocial anthem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's very punk rock. Uh, let's take a listen to Playground Problems. Yeah.
again. Yeah, seriously, seriously. If there were ever two tracks that just encapsulate what Lost and Rewound is all about, it was that. You could just present these two tracks. And yeah, honestly, it. your like, brain is full of shit. Your mouth is full of crap. I don't want to play with you. If that's not punk, I don't know what is. Oh, oh my god. Right. Whew. These songs are such opportunities for sampling. <laughs> I take it. I like so, I okay. didn't know I needed a screaming ten-year-old in the back of my tracks, but apparently I need a screaming ten-year-old in the back of my tracks. It kind of worked. It worked well. And then, besides those two songs, there's like a whole forty-minute tape. But I think those two are the only ones that really have fully vetted with both of us in it. There's a few songs that I did by myself, like some instrumentals. And actually, in some ways, it's sort of bookends with the SDX record, which has a lot of music and a couple of instrumentals on it. But there are some other songs. I did one called He Can't Find a Date and another one called Bored in Class, which I sang and I couldn't sing very well yet at that point. So I was also going through puberty. So it sounds like Peter Brady. Um, <laughs> Doing punk rock. I think we need more time of that. for no. a change. <laughs> exactly. Um, maybe you play it for your family. Uh, I mean, but in terms of once this was all created, there must have been some notoriety. You clearly could have had the opportunity to play this for friends and family alike. Uh, how? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How much of a hit within your inner circle was I this? I made record? about thirty copies of the tape. And Amazing. I, I started giving it out in my high school and I don't know if I gave Mark some to give to friends or there was no internet. So the only way to get things out was to make tapes and then duplicate them and, and then pass them out. So yeah, I would have listening parties at my friends' houses. I would just bring <laughs> it cool. over when I would go hang out at their houses and make them listen to it. So I never saw any of the copies, but like my, you know, Mike would like, you know, hand cut with scissors, you know, like, like old school newspaper. He's the doctor. He's the, right. you're, you're a doctor. Hey, right. he's a doctor. But a so different here, way. here is the tape. Wow. I have wow. your master tape with pre-Photoshop. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I had someone take a picture of me. I cut that picture out and then put it over another picture of me. Playing, <laughs> in the backyard. Right. Playing bass in the backyard. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I, and I had a computer dot matrix printer print up. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm gonna have to screenshot this or something, man. Yeah, the yeah. listener has to a, see this. I have a scan. I can send you. Oh it. my god! I, like, wrote the names out of the songs. It reminds me literally of like when printers were in its first early stages and when it was making the loudest sounds ever. <laughs> make those fonts. Oh, that's Your great. Ten-year-old picture uh 10 year old school picture and then there's me playing drums in the snow damn oh i remember setting up the drums and it was the middle of the winter there were definitely times and the parents were like what this is what we did i mean it, it's kind of what kids could do before they had devices right like literally we had to create our own technology in a lot of ways and also make our own fun there's more to come in a few from sdx right here on lost and rewound stick around Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air. Support independent community media by pledging whatever you can. All contributions are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org 
slash donate. By that point, Mark started going the next year, really. He went into middle school. I mm-hmm. stepped into junior year in high school. So that was like more freedom, you know, starting to use this technique of making recordings and collaborating with schoolmates. And so mm-hmm. I started getting yeah. into making bands. And I, I was in a band called Mushrooms, which was very popular in our high school. You know, I'm still friends with those guys. And in fact, after reuniting with Mark to make SDX, I've been reuniting with them and I'm working on a record with Mushrooms. And it's now renamed as Just Mushrooms because there's like a million bands called Mushrooms. But, um, <laughs> but we were the first in 1986. But Mark and I always still played in high school. And by that time I went to college and I was doing other music. So we sort of split off for a while. We kind of came back every 10 years, we'd come back and do something. Yeah, every so 10, cool. 10 years. So I had moved to New York in 93. And then my friend that was in Mushrooms moved to New York and we started a band called Poolsville. Poolsville was another project that was more with my friend Joey Fortuna. He's also a singer-songwriter. We first started off as a duo playing at open mics in Williamsburg and Lower East Side and different places downtown. We also hosted the internet radio show on pseudo.com in the late 90s. We did that weekly for three years. Being that you guys are around the Maryland area, um, right. any connection to Poolsville, Maryland? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. I mean, I think Joey actually grew up in a neighboring town, so he grew up much further out from the city. The ex-guitar players from Mushrooms was in New York, and we needed a drummer. He had learned how to play drums. I had been the drummer of Mushrooms and learned to play guitar, and was a songwriter in Poolsville with Joey. So it was sort of like me and this guy, Mark Goldstein, switched roles and he joined uh, Poolsville. Then he moved and the bass player that we, he had brought in moved. We got a new drummer and then we needed a bass player and Mark had just moved to New York. So I was like, Mark, why don't you join the band? And so instead of being drummer to Mark's bass, I was guitar player to Mark's bass. There was a lot of energy in that band in the front. You know, Mark and I probably moved very differently. Mark's a much more experienced performer than I am. But at that point in time, we were more equal. And people said we moved alike. The brothers would move the same way, but then Joey would move a different way. And so- And he, and he was center stage. That was, yeah, we sort of, flanked him. Stage. sort of flanked him, yeah. Yeah, he was center stage. And then we were on the sides doing our thing. We termed our style slop pop because it was pop music. Yeah. Like, Floppy. Okay, I was going to say, because that I found that uh, term rather endearing. I've never seen it written or uh, <laughs> put out in the wild, but here I am talking to, apparently, the inventors of Slop Pop. I guess it was 1998 at this point when I played my first gig with them or in New York City. And it was Arlene Grocery. And this was back when Arlene's was just one room. There was no cover. The place was packed constantly. In fact, there was no way to get to the stage unless you lifted your amp. Yeah, your head that's the way to do it. To get through the crowd. So it felt very gratifying to be able to play. And even passing the bucket, we would get $200 sometimes. Kind of seemed like they were trying to incubate a lot of bands. We're going to listen right now to a track from Poolsville. This was a, a track that was written around 1999. It's called Pretend to Transcend. Yeah, I wrote this one. I probably wrote it in late 97 98 
Mark takes a verse, I take a verse, and I think Joey sings the middle. Is that right? He sings uh, the bridge. He sings, yeah, sings yeah. the bridge. Probably has some meaning to Mark and I's uh, relationship relative to our family, and also getting through difficult times and pretending and acting as if, you know, there's like the idea of acting as if you're going to be okay, even though you may not believe it, but you act as if you're going to be okay, you know, which is very much like what I'm doing every day now. <laughs> you know. well, we'll, 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 we'll get to that later. And I, and, and yeah. I think you were, you were going through your pet sounds phase. So yeah, there's a lot yeah, of Ryan Wilson and melody. Yeah, there's some. Uh, you'll hear some Beach Boys influence. So. Yeah. I was gonna say, say no more. Once you say <laughs> you're going through your pet sounds phase, I can't wait to hear this now. All right, Poolsville from '99, uh, a track called "Pretend to Transcend" here on LNR.
Solid. Layman. Solid. Yes. As Rachel says every time something that truly is flaming is flaming, that was <laughs> for sure the flaming. It was 100% flaming. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, has, it has a lot of pep still after all these years. When I first started going to concerts in New York City, it was in New York City, more or less, that I was going to see my first shows. And I can't tell you how many shows I went and saw. I can't really recall it. A lot of them were at the bigger venues, like the Roselands and all that. I got to say that, like, if I had the wherewithal and the mind and the hipness to know about all, like, the shows that were happening, and obviously if I was of age, because, I mean, I can only imagine how many of your shows, you know, when you're playing in the LES, you're not going to be, like, you know, all ages. But, like, I totally would have been like, oh, my God, this is a New York City band experience. Going and seeing a band like yours and hearing that kind of music in a live setting would just be so exciting for a 15, 16-year-old. Oh, my God, I can already feel that. That's so cool. I mean, yeah, that's great. the thing is, what's it, interesting too is that, except for the drummer, very talented drummer named Adam Chasson, um, still friends with him, we really were not from New York. But in a way, at that time, it was still really possible to move to New York without a whole lot of money. And if you wanted to be in a band, try to get yourself together. I don't know what it's like to be young now and try to do that. It's been quite a long time. And I totally own the fact that I'm old and have been here for almost three decades. It felt very exciting. There was a lot of bands who were from elsewhere and bringing their influences with them. And so there was like this sort of like, the, you know, the melting pot idea of like Lower East Side groups. I hadn't played bass in years since like high school. <laughs> I didn't even really have a real bass. I had this like PV with a fretless neck on it that I'd put on. Say, the guy yeah. had done a real hatchet job when he had done it too. Like he actually took the truss rod out of the neck. So it was like, it was, it was like ridiculous. Wow. So I had this fretless sound to it, which yeah. we used on another song kind of, or, or sort of highlighted that. Because after Poolsville broke up, I then like tried to kind of build something out of that you know, on my own. And it took a long, long time. It was like a weird experience to sort of jump into something that was already well kind of established um that i didn't have to deal with really trying to build anything you know i definitely i felt like i was hot shit i was 22 23 years old and playing on the lower east side to packed places and you know i was uh i was the youngest guy in the band at that point i still play arlene's grocery sometimes with my police tribute band like back in the before time and i don't walk into that place without still remembering like the smell is the smell of it still smells the same in a lot of ways. I walk in, it's still Oh my god. I yeah. <laughs> I still, totally it still hits I'm me just, that that was yeah. like kind of where I kind of learned how to play here. I have to just say a big milestone that sort of disrupted so much for me artistically was 9/11. I lived down in Chinatown and I lived through that experience and I didn't fortunately lose anyone close to me, but it had a very chilling effect upon a lot of the culture in, in the lower Manhattan. And um, so I really stopped chasing the limelight much because my son, once he was born, would scream every time I picked up the guitar. <laughs> I really was like, it was just unpleasant. So I just kind of left it. I mean, uh, my musical career has been bursts. I, 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 you know, after Poolsville broke up, it's been some bursts here and there. And, you know, about 12 years later, 
or 10 years later, Mark and I started working together on the Miguel project. Miguel and the Ocean Swell. Yeah, yeah. What a name. What inspires these bursts? I really look at music more from a writing standpoint than a performing standpoint. I just am not engaged unless I feel like I have something, some story to tell. Mm -hmm. And I'm overcome with the compulsion to write something and make it cohesive. I mean, I kept writing all through those years and I have, you know, dozens of half finished songs or songs that stand on their own is maybe interesting, but until I can put together a package of songs like the very first Establishment X, I can't really engage in it. So when Miguel came around, I think I was coming out of the shell of post 9-11 and also my kids were getting older enough that I could um, spend at least a few hours a week, you know, just working on things and, and started writing again. And what came out of it was something completely different. And I think I write to get to know myself again. So like I'll go through these like rings on a tree, right? Like many years past and then I start writing and I'm like, I start tapping into something. I'm like, oh, now I'm 40 year old Mike Rinzel, you know? Now I'm 50 year old Mike Rinzel, which I just turned 50. And you know, SDX came out a day before I was 50. And I feel like I write in order to get to know myself, you know? and. So that's sort of like maybe explains some of the bursts. Miguel was probably more of my first attempt at writing everything and singing everything. And I've always mm -hmm. been in collaborations. I went through this sort of spiritual transformation, I think, you know, in the mid aughts or late aughts. And, um, and this record sort of, I don't know, I guess, journalized that experience. Tell us about Toy on a String. This was released in 2012. Mark, did you have any specific uh, anecdotes that uh, come to mind about this song? Not so much. I mean, the, the process of making this record was a lot of fun for me because it was, I would say it was a total role reversal, but right, it, you, you know, it was like where Mike just kind of brought in these, he was very open about what we could do with them. And right, I had you know, at this point in the interregnum between Poolsville and this, I had been kind of at it for a while. I had gone through a few different original bands that had gotten some traction. Um, I kind of made my na a name for myself as a singer in the sort of tribute community. Yeah. Doing like Loser's Lounge and all that stuff. It was pre-Jesse's Girl, but like, yeah, I had done a bunch of things. And yeah, and I had this relationship with Alan Camlet. I, every, all of my original projects had done we'd done our records with him and Oscar, you know, we just, we, and I had a cover band that did weddings and stuff together. Like we just, we had like a shorthand, the three of us. So we were almost like kind of the band of Mike's Bob Dylan. And so Mike kind of kept brought in this, these tracks and like, I got to sort of produce this with, with, with Alan, you know, like just kind of come up with ideas and arrangement and stuff like that. It was a chance where I got to bring a skill set that I had acquired and, um, sort of refined. I was doing a lot of Beatles gigs too. I think around this period of time, I had like a Beatles project I had been doing with a guy named Dave Foster, a bubble. I had actually subbed, I'd done the Beatles fest. Like, you know, like I, I was- I was there. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you were there in 2010, I was subbing for Glenn Burtnick, uh, which was like one of the most terrifying things I've ever had to do. Um, <laughs> But I was kind of primed to sort of take a song like Toy, which was like this, this, this great poppy tune and kind of really 
you'll, it's nothing sloppy about this one. It's very kind of pro and polished sound. Hey. So there's a lot of maturity in it. Like a toy on a string Pull up turn around I'm falling Falling back down I've given up my plans And I'm crawling on my hands And you've taken everything like listening to that song and when was the last time you heard it i haven't heard it in a while yeah i hadn't heard it either in a while i was actually reminded of um those little uh like those toddler toys where you pull around an animal on wheels and there's a string attached to it i had one and it was like a turtle sort of wooden thing and that's what i thought of i mean what you were writing it felt very much like a paul westerberg song that he wished he wrote it was just very, very catchy pop. And it, it's exactly what it was setting out to do. So maybe you needed that time away, man. Maybe you needed that time to just sort of allow life to happen and to allow your uh, music to mature. From a musical standpoint, it made me incredibly nostalgic. Even though I've never heard it before, it really kind of goes along the same vibes of the music that I grew up on, which seems pretty similar to what you guys grew up on. It sounded like something that my dad would be playing on our record in the background while playing with Legos or something. That's what that song gave me. Mm. 
We have time for one final track, and it's your most recent one. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll just be honest. Like, I was pretty shell-shocked just trying to maintain with a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a school teacher in the home. And I was starting a new job when COVID happened. I was, like, working for the same boss. It was, like, a lateral move within the hospital, so it wasn't, like, totally new. But I just was so wiped, and then I would get these emails from Mike, like, hey, I'm working on these things, working, you know. <laughs> and I kind of just... I mean, my first, to be honest, like my first reaction was just like, that's great, Mike. I, I, I can't, I don't have the bandwidth for it. And I've, and I've just been coming off of you know, the, the Jesse's girl. T- I was on a cruise ship, the 80s cruise ship. Oh, man. The, the shit hit the fan, really. Shit. Uh, yeah, terrified I wasn't going to get off the ship. You know, I've just spent the past seven years just doing this punishing, working full time and then doing kind of really heavy, dark work and then doing two or three gigs a week driving all over the tri-state area. I mean, I was burnt out. Mike was sending me these things and I, you know, I was like, part of me was kind of like, how could you, how could you write right now? I can't even fucking write emails. I mean, my contributions to this record in general were, were very simple. I mean, like probably, you know, I imported, listened to it a couple of times. I would sing along with the scratch that Mike had laid down. He didn't need anything other than me just to, you know, send it back a, a vocal stem and then he would just kind of run with it. But, but video drone for sure, there was something very kind of, there's some kind of eighties about it and moody. And it was like the kind of eighties songs that I don't actually get to do in my eighties band. Cause it's a little too. Mike, what for you uh, was the experience? I didn't start off with any goal. My kids are older. One is at college. My two other kids are middle school, and high school. And they live upstate with their mom in Ithaca. I'm remarried here in Bushwick, and my wife and I were both working from home, but without the ability to go out, uh, there was a lot of time, you know, and there was a lot of like wanting to escape the feelings of terror. I mean, I live right down the street from Wakeoff on a one way street, and down the street from me, all of the ambulances would go by my apartment. And I'm on the ground floor apartment. In March and April, it was literally an onslaught every 10 minutes. An ambulance was screaming by our house, bringing somebody to the hospital. So just wanting to escape that feeling and finding escape through like Netflix, really unsatisfying. Um, I was just picking up the guitar and, um, And I was just like, uh, I need to write. I think I need to write about this. I wanted to try and write uh, a few songs, not a whole record, but maybe two or three, a small EP or something. There was no time to digest the feelings of it. It was just like, I wanted to get lyrics that captured the sirens, captured um, all of the, the sounds and sights and actions, actions and descriptions rather than feelings. And uh, of course, it's hard to keep feelings out of it. They just come through somehow. So every day I went on, a, I tried to get out. I went on a walk around the Ridgewood graveyard there and I would do a loop. I would cut through the graveyard and the graveyard became my muse. And so I was just writing about death, you know, and New York and what I love about it. Video drone I wrote differently than the way it turned out. It was much slower. It was almost like a Bob Dylan song. <laughs> and uh, it just evolved. And my supportive wife heard a million different versions. Like, I'm like, how's this mixed sound? I was like, yeah, you know, finally I got it right. 
And I was like, okay, I'm going to send this to Mark. I think he's going to like this. I feel like this weird outsider of like not having Zoom fatigue yet after all these months. 
that was gorgeous. I <laughs> gave myself a chance to listen to the record independently, and that track just continues to stay uh, solid in my book. Rachel, how did that sound hearing it for the first time? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it sounds modern and classy. It sounds like great walking music. Oh, I'm glad you hear that. I mean, yeah, I wrote it while I was walking. <laughs> yeah, I had played it. We listened to the whole record. Over the summer, we were lucky enough in my house to be able to go up um, to the Berkshires for pretty much the whole summer. And um, so we were on our way to a hike and we played the whole record. And it just, you know, the whole hike, the boys, you know, were singing this the whole way. So that's a good sign. Stanley, the littlest one, six one, he's just like, you should make another one so you can make a lot of money. <laughs> That's his whole thing. Oh, baby capitalist. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're both, they're both, they're both. That's their mom's side of the family. <laughs> My nephews are awesome. And in fact, if they're big fans, then that's, that's hugely fulfilling to me. <laughs> My own kids are fans. <laughs> But, well, they, they're totally indifferent to like my original music. I, I think that's something uh, yeah. kids have a hard time. It's, it's, it's too, I don't think they, they don't want, they have a hard time seeing dad give away too much of himself to things. They just don't at all receive the establishment X material with any, like it just goes over their head completely. Like, oh, that was you? <laughs> I haven't played it for them yet, actually. I've been trying to find I always like get a copy of it and then I can't find it. Like if you could share it, because um I had it maybe on an old drive and I can't find it. No, I would actually like to play I playground problems I've sang for them and they they think it's hilarious. They would probably <laughs> like it. I mean they do stuff like this all the time. They have a band called You Rock Me Sing. You're recording <laughs> you're recording all their stuff, right? <laughs> They're recording it. Amazing. They, they taught That's them how to use I won't let them play video games or anything, but I'll teach them how to do like garage band and stuff. So like they, yeah, they spent last week recording all sorts of stuff. Stanley's the one, actually kind of the, the younger ones, the more of the songwriter. But it's, I got to say, it's very moving to watch because, you know, I feel like um, it's like watching them do that together. But Mike and I have, it's such a huge part of my life. Um, you guys ever seen um, the movie Inside Out? Like, this is a huge island. <laughs> you know, when I talk about the islands of personality, like, like just what Mike and I do together. So it's like so seeing that kind of pass down to the two of them together is great. Yeah, it's a huge gift to be able to have made all this music over the years with Mark. I mean, um, it is also a big island in my psyche, my, my personality. And also just grateful we could do something new. Um, and then it turned out good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, for my own kids, uh, their mom is a painter, a very artistic person. You know, I also have used my producer skills as a career. So I've been a digital producer working for media companies for a long time. And so um, I'm always in this sort of, how can I construct this into a thing uh, mode? And I think that I've really tried to let them find what they want, you know, like let them be free to like music or not like music. I have a strong connection with all three of them in some ways with music, like the music they like and uh, what they like to listen to. And they definitely educate me on like what is great music now. I'm grateful for that too. My daughter, I think she and I probably have the closest connection on what I've written 
she definitely was a big fan of Miguel. And she, there's one song in there that is about being with my kids in Coney Island, mm. made her emotional, like hearing it sometimes because she, she remembers. And our, our family, we ended up splitting in different directions, you know, like sometimes happens. I hear things in that record that are maybe present for what was going to happen. I think like Mark said, it's a little hard to sometimes see your own parent objectively as an artist. I think you just like, they're, but their dad is his mom and dad, and they're just doing that. And maybe seeing their art separately from the parent is a little bit uh, hard to do, I, I would imagine. You both have been very vulnerable and, uh, and so many great admissions this hour. Mark and Mike Rinzel here on Lost and Rewound for this week. Thank you guys so much. Yes, thank uh, you so much. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation and would like to share some of your very own sounds from the distant past, email the show, lostandrewound at radiofreebrooklyn.org. And if you're curious about what kind of submissions we've been privileged to unleash in years past, look no further than our SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash lostandrewound. We're also up on Apple Podcasts and, of course, our main hub, RHQ Effectively, featuring the very handy built-in megaphone player is RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash L-A-R. This has been Episode 227 of Lost and Rewound. Check back in with us next Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m., only here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Till then, this is Alon signing out, telling you, as always, to stay safe and sane, practice kindness when you can, and please, get out the vote. Later. are very um stubborn and continue to just are are not stubborn you were very very inherently influenced by the sheer uh incapability of doing anything else other than just collaborating um can you talk about i was about gonna how say resilient resilience absolutely that's the social work word yes absolutely <laughs> strength-based way of looking at it but don't uh, don't even i feel like every <laughs> process every processed recording i've ever written has strength-based perspective on it <laughs> i wouldn't even make you do process recordings let's talk <laughs> <laughs>